0: Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts 23. This morning I'm going to read just the first 11 verses of this chapter, but we will be covering, Lord willing, the entire chapter. We'll pick up the other verses as we come to them. Hear now God's Word. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded that those, uh, those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. am I, to, I am to be judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night... The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. In Acts chapter 9, just after Jesus had arrested Saul on the road to Damascus, You'll recall that Jesus spoke to another Ananias in a vision and said to him regarding Saul, uh, Acts chapter 9, 15 and 16, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Gentiles, kings, and Jews these are paul's audiences and we will see all of we see all of this unfolding in the book of acts paul's freedom is over uh, as we continue here toward the end of the book but his ministry is not over we can minister we can serve god wherever we are in every circumstance As Corrie ten Boom said, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And so here in this desperate situation, Paul is relying upon Christ. So we left our story with Paul having been severely beaten by an inflamed mob at the temple. They drug him out and they closed the temple doors and they are literally about to kill him when he was rescued from certain death by the Roman commander and his troops. They were stationed next door. They saw the ruckus and they uh, headed over there. It was a 911 call. He was headed for another beating by the Romans after they got him uh, because they didn't understand what was going on and so their standard way of extracting information was through torture, through scourging. And uh, But then Paul makes it known that he is a Roman citizen which again is a beautiful picture of the providence of God and how he had arranged this day, this moment, way ahead of time. Probably Paul's father or grandfather had become a Roman citizen. And so here he was, a Roman citizen by birth, and this was going to save his life. So the commander has him then appear before the Sanhedrin, uh, the council of the Jews, to be examined in hopes of discovering exactly what all the ruckus is about. And, and what it was that had stirred up all the outrage against him. So again, the council, the Sanhedrin, was the, uh, was the highest Jewish court. Uh, all the internal affairs of the Jews in Judea were overseen by the high priest, along with the uh, 70 elders over which he presided. He was, in other words, the presiding minister of council. Um, it's interesting to note that a good number of Roman soldiers would, in this situation where he's taken as a prisoner, he's taken here to appear before the Sanhedrin, he had a pretty good number of Roman soldiers there with him listening to all of this. They would have heard what Paul had to say. And we're going to see that happen in a number of circumstances. And again, seeing how God is at work in the middle of trouble. Paul would later write to the church at Philippi in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He says, but I want you to know... Brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak without fear. So... Paul is drawing out these good things that God is doing in the midst of what on the surface looks like something really tragic and awful. So people are getting converted, even in even the Romans. And some of you, because you've seen how I've handled this, now you're handling, you're, you're speaking out with boldness in a way you wouldn't have before. So this is just another example of how God uses what seems to be bad circumstances to accomplish the work of his kingdom. Man's plans often backfire in the face of God's plans. Or as Proverbs 16:9 puts it, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Perhaps Paul recalled what he uh what he had commended to Timothy or how he commended Timothy, who had quote confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses and then urged him to remember that he was before Christ Jesus who himself witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So Paul is imitating Jesus. He had commended Timothy, you do the same thing, and of course Paul is likewise doing that himself. Derek Thomas noted that Luke wants us to see that we too must be ready to testify for Jesus Christ no matter what our circumstances. In times of personal adversity... Sickness or need, we are bound to utilize uh, these these for gospel ends, turning them into situations in which we may testify to the love of God in the gospel. Now, I want to take a moment for a pastoral note. It thrills me to know that many, if not most of you, uh, that for you this is true. I have seen you stand up. I have seen you stand firm in the face of great adversity. I've seen you be faithful when it would have been much easier to remain silent or to deny our Lord. Thank you. But it pains me greatly to know that a few of you are playing a dangerous game. You are whitewashed walls. Christians in name only, who never take a real stand for him. You blink every time. You go along with the crowd. You don't stand against it, and you certainly don't stand for Christ. Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father in heaven. And that doesn't mean just saying, I deny Jesus. That means sitting there with your mouth closed when it needs to be open. Standing there and participating when you ought to be walking away in protest. That's what it means to speak up for Jesus. And you might think that what you do is none of my business or none of the church's business, but let me warn you, in the strongest possible terms, it is the business of Jesus. Your conduct is His business. Hebrews four eleven 11-13, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit. That means the division of your soul and your spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Paul is fully cognizant of these truths. He also knew that his audience was much bigger than this council. He had written to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. There is always a conscious awareness God is his audience. Jesus is his audience all the time. And as he starts his defense, declaring that he, is, that he has had and that he currently has a good conscience before God, the high priest orders someone to smack him in the mouth. Paul immediately retorts, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? So Paul is rebuffed. And they ask him, are you going to revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So he quotes the law. Now, perhaps the high priest wasn't wearing his robe or his distinctive garb that day of his office, or perhaps it was Paul's eyesight. We know that uh, Paul, uh, for example, in Galatians 6 says, See what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. So uh, a fair amount of speculation that Paul had very poor eyesight. Maybe he just didn't see who it was that had spoken. Regardless, once he knew that he had spoken against the high priest, Paul acknowledges that he shouldn't have done so because that was a violation of the law. So as we read the Bible, as we read through stories like this, of course, we want to follow the story itself. We want to know this story. It's our story. It's our history. But we also want to extract a few lessons. We do want to do what Paul later will say is be imitators of him as he is an imitator of Christ. So once he knew that he had spoken against the high priest, he acknowledges that he shouldn't have done so, because that was also a violation of Exodus twenty two, twenty eight. And so this is a principle that I think many of us forget when it comes to showing respect uh, for those in authority, especially when they when they act poorly. We may do that with our president, our other leaders, our parents. Our teachers. When we degrade the office, we invite chaos. Jude speaks of those who defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Even the archangel talking to the devil who used to be his boss did not revile him directly. Nevertheless, those in authority also have an obligation to do what they ought to do and it is appropriate for us in many circumstances to remind them and others of that duty but to not do it in demeaning ways to the office. So when so while Paul has a clear conscience, that doesn't mean he never did anything wrong. It did mean that when he did do or say something wrong, he was very quick to own it and to make it right. Now, Paul has read his audience. He looks up. He's there before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, Jay Adams wrote a book called Audience Adaptations in the Sermons of Paul. So he's not at the Areopagus. He's not speaking in a, at, at the temple right now. He's not speaking to the, to the Greeks. He's here speaking before the Sanhedrin, and he reads his audience. And as a result, he interjects a topic that is sure to get the room divided and which will take the focus off of him. Verse 6, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, These were Republicans and Democrats, apparently. He cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. This is the divide and conquer strategy. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection. And no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud cry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, Oh, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel spoken to him, uh, let's not fight against it. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him back into barracks. He's seen this before. He saw it at the temple. He sees this same thing playing out, and he rushes in with his men to grab Paul, and and we're going to see why that is is in just a moment. So the Sadducees were the liberals of the day, which means they were anti supernaturalist They denied that there was any resurrection at all, and as Jesus said about them in Mark chapter 12, you do not know the Scriptures, nor the power of God. But the verse I mentioned in Sunday school that jumped out me, out to me at, uh, the most in this chapter amid all of this, twice now, in very brief order, Paul has barely escaped with his life. The Lord stood by him. He's back in the barracks now. The Lord stood by him, verse 11, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness of me in Rome. Be of good cheer. Cheer up. Really? That just is amazing. In the midst of this. Now that word could also be translated, be encouraged. Gather up some more courage. You're going to need it. But you should be encouraged. We should remember... What Jesus said in Acts 1.8, right? Which is really kind of, to pick out one verse in the whole book of Acts, it really tells us what's going on, where Jesus appears after his resurrection to his disciples, and he says, "...you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth." So here we are again. So Jesus didn't speak to Paul to tell him that he would be released from his chains, that everything's going to be okay, or uh, as the old Oral Roberts song, something good is going to happen to you. Um, uh, These encouraging words of Jesus must have, though, been great comfort to the Apostle during the coming trials, his two years of imprisonment that are ahead of him, and an incredibly hazardous voyage to Rome. In the midst of all that, Jesus would be with him which reminds me of the story of Joseph in Genesis. Genesis 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Where is Joseph receiving this favor? While he's in prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison, whatever they did there, uh, it was his doing the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made prosper. The Lord was with him when his brothers sold him into slavery. The Lord was with him when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. The Lord was with him in prison. It reminds me of when my grandson, Henry, was four years old. He observed that God is so powerful he can even ripstick in grass. For those of you who know what a ripstick is, that's pretty impressive. A good four year old observation. God is so powerful that he can turn bad circumstances into good ones. So then we're in verse 12, we have the conspiracy. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priest and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he gets near. So there have been... Multiple attempts on Paul's life already, but now a group of over 40 have hatched a new plot to murder him. And they have promised to fast until they accomplish that plan. These zealots cut a deal with the Sanhedrin. If they will get him back to the court along the narrow streets, then they're going to intercept him and kill him. And then, again, I'm reminded, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 keeps coming up a lot. Um, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together and against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He shall hold them in derision we got this big plot, this big conspiracy, 40-plus men, the Sanhedrin, all of that coming together to kill one man in the streets of Jerusalem. And God laughs. Watch what he does here in a minute. I'm reminded of uh, R.J. Rushdooney's comment about conspiracy. He said, The view of history as conspiracy, however absurd to the liberal with his impersonal philosophy, is a basic aspect of the perspective of Orthodox Christianity. As Psalm 2 presents it, the ungodly nations and peoples rage; they conspire together and imagine a vain thing. The tri- that, and the, the vain thing that they imagine is the triumph of their conspiracy. This is going to work. Precisely because it is a vain thing, the orthodox Christian's philosophy of history cannot make the conspiracy, however central to the stage of history, cannot make it the main fact of history. Yes, there are conspiracies, but wait. Believing as he must in the sovereignty and the predestinating power of God, the meaning of history is for him transcendental. That is, above all this, the main fact is the eternal decree and certainty of the Son's victory. Who shall make the nations his inheritance and possess the ends of the earth in, the, in history and beyond history? Now, therefore, from Psalm 2, act wisely... And be warned, O rulers of the earth, lest you perish in the way. You think you're going to kill Paul? This assurance of victory is the hallmark of faith. And so the most careful, the most cunning, and secretive human plans cannot succeed if God opposes them. That was true in the first century. And that was true in every century before the first century, and it has been true in every century since the first century, including this one. Verse 16, so when Paul's sister's son, here's how God is going to intervene. All these big plans, 40-plus men, the whole Sanhedrin, 70-plus, big plans. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, call me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. He's an informant. Then the commander took him by the hand, so he must have been a young boy, went aside and asked privately, you imagine this, this commander of the Romans down with this little boy? What, what do you want to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him, but do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready to wait for the promise from you. Now they're waiting for the promise from you. And so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. Don't let them know that I know. So God had Paul's nephew in the right place at the right time. No conspiracy of men could prove to be an obstacle of God accomplishing his purpose. And by the way, I just want to remind you, it's not just because this is about the Apostle Paul. It's not just because this is in the Bible. This is not some aberration like, oh, this is an unusual circumstance. No, God is sovereign over all circumstances, all of your circumstances, all of my circumstances. He is the sovereign orchestrator of all the circumstances. I might be under the circumstances, but he is over the circumstances. And so this young man runs straight to his Uncle Paul to tell him what's up. And again, we should think of Joseph. Derek Thomas comments, Think of how God used a coat of many colors to provoke Joseph's brothers to jealousy, to sell him as a slave to a passing band of Midianites. Little did they know that the entire course of Old Testament history was at stake. When Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of sexual assault, little did Joseph himself realize this, that, that this too was part of an intricate plan to provide circumstances for him to exercise his God-given gifts so as to ultimately impress the Pharaoh of himself, even if that would initially be a prison cell. Years later, as the second most powerful person in Egypt, Joseph would say to his brothers, As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And So, so one other thing we should keep in mind are the socio-political facts that are before us in this story. What's going on in the, the church isn't over here just doing its own little thing, living its own history. We we're interacting always with all the stuff that's in the news, all the stuff that's in the world. At this time, there were about we were about, at this time we we're about ten years away from the beginning of the Roman Jewish powder keg, which will erupt in the first Jewish Roman war, which is between A.D. sixty six and seventy three. This is where the temple was going to be utterly destroyed and razed to the ground. That's, that's, the, that's what's going on politically. Less than ten years out, these were nationalist rebellions striving to restore an independent Judean state and will lead, again, to the complete destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. And it wasn't just the Jews against the Romans. The Jews themselves are all kinds of factions fighting each other. This was not like, you know, just two sides. There's a there's turmoil everywhere you look. Rome was more, as a result, Rome was more than eager to quell every Jewish uprising they could get their hands on. So from the top down, they've they've told the commanders, your job is to make sure this doesn't get out of hand. If you see a a riot, uh, you're not going to see what we see on the news with the police standing back over behind barricades just letting it happen. The Romans were not timid about charge. And so those like commander Claudius Lysias here did not want any trouble because if there's trouble he's going to be held liable. They can replace him overnight. And so had this plot to kill Paul succeeded then this commander was going to be toast. So he was going to do whatever it took to ensure that Paul gets handed off to someone else soon. That night, in fact. And so he's going to take extreme measures to protect his prisoner from this terrorist plot. Verse 23, and he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts, it's 9 o'clock at night, and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And so he writes a letter, uh, and here's the letter he writes to Felix. Uh, it's from Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the council I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death and chains. And when it was told me that the Jews uh, lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to uh, Antipatris, The next day, they left the horsemen to go on with him, returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So... Felix lived in Caesarea, which was the uh, provincial capital of Judea, and it's about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. So Felix uh, ruled as uh, Judea's uh, uh, procurator for about eight years, from A.D. 52, and he was known for his ruthless quelling of every kind of Jewish uprising. He didn't put up with it. The title that uh, Lysias uses for him, most excellent, was reserved for two classes of people in Rome, the equestrian knights and the governors, which, Lysia, which uh, Felix is. Uh, they are third in rank only under the emperor and the senators. So he's this is a powerful man. For example, Felix has had three wives. His first wife was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. And his third wife was Drusilla, who was the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. So he's married royalty. He's known, again, for his brutal quelling of Jewish insurrection. Felix is really high up in the Roman hierarchy, and he's representing the emperor Claudius. He's doing his bidding. The historian Tacitus said that he had the power of a king, and he doesn't know it. But this encounter with the Apostle Paul will be the most important thing he ever does. So Lysias sent this letter to Felix with his own spin on the facts. Did you catch that? Uh, To portray himself in the most favorable light. For example, he places his discovery of Paul's citizenship before his rescue instead of after it, which is the way it really happened. And, of course, he is silent regarding the fact that he's the one that had Paul bound and was about to scourge him, which would have gotten him in big trouble, Paul being a Roman citizen. Six times in this short letter he refers to himself. So, again, God's using the politics here of men to accomplish his purpose. So, once again, here we are in the story We wait for another trial. We're left with another cliffhanger. We're in another opportunity for the gospel will present itself. Our faith in the sovereign power and good providence of God is the solution to all of our problems. Let me say that again. Our faith in the sovereign power and good providence of God is the solution to all our problems. That doesn't mean we just say that and sit there and wait. Okay. It also means, like Paul did, no doubt, as he got out his Bible. And he prayed. And he fellowshiped. He did the things God gave him to do so that he could do this. He could put his faith in a sovereign God. So a self-conscious trust in him and all of his promises to us. That's the solution. We don't know much. But we do know, and I mentioned several things we know this morning in our Sunday school class, but one of the ones I mentioned that I'll remind you of that you know well, that we know we know that all things work together for good to those who are Uh, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So those are just some of the lessons we want to draw out of this part of the story. And as we get ready for the next part of this story, we're going to see Paul to continue to rely upon God's promises and to be bold and to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story that has been preserved for us. That not only... Did those who witnessed the Apostle Paul in these circumstances, not only were they emboldened, but we too are emboldened to hear this story 2,000 years later. That the effects of this faithfulness continue to live on. Help us to see, Lord, that as we are faithful, that you bless our faithfulness likewise in our children, and our children's children, for a thousand generations. That it matters whether we believe or don't believe, whether we obey or disobey whether we trust or or panic. Help us, Lord, also, like the Apostle, to be bold. To be bold when we're with our friends, to be bold with our families, to be bold in church and to be bold in the world, to be wise, to be full of grace, to be full of faith, and to take our calling in you seriously. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The walk with God is to fear no evil. Does this describe you? Or do you live in anxiety about all the dangers, the plots, and the conspiracies in this world? Surely the Apostle Paul must have thought about passages like Isaiah 26, verses 3-5, through 5, where it speaks of the Lord, says, You will keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. For He brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty cities. He lays it low, He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. Perhaps we too should think of passages like this more often, and there are many of them. How easily we forget the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Maybe we need to remember the words of Daniel. Chapter 2 of Daniel, verses 20 through 22. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep, secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with Him. We come to the table today to remember those kinds of things. That's our God. This is the God that rescued us, translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the Son of His love. This table is the place where we come back to begin a new week focused on who we are in Him. I'm a Christian. I was purchased by Him. I am not my own. I belong to Him. I am a follower of Him. I have denied myself. That's what we're called to remember. If that's not what you're remembering when you eat this bread and drink this wine, then you're in danger. This is a table of blessing. But if it's taken lightly, if it's disregarded, then it can do the opposite. That's what the Bible teaches. So we come with all seriousness... But we come with all joy. You can have both of those at the same time. We can have joy at the same time we're trembling. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of wisdom, that it leads to the joy that we have in Him, the peace that we have in Christ. So let us come and remember. Father, we are privileged indeed to come into your presence. We pray, Father, that you will receive our praise, our prayers, our confession, all of that from sincere hearts. And now we ask that you, Lord, anoint us and send us out to live, to live bold lives, faithful lives, lives full of love toward our neighbors, to our families. Help us, Lord, to be more diligent in all of these things this coming week, that we might return here, to grow and to learn and to be fed, that we might continue to make progress in sanctification through the work of the Spirit. We pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.